Thanks, Josh. And thanks for everyone that's making this happen. Glad you're here. Uh, glad to be here having this opportunity to proclaim the gospel in our city. Um, it feels weird to preach at night, so uh, all of this stuff is something that we were trying to try a couple weeks ago, and now we get a shot at it, and I'm grateful that you've shown up to be part of that. My name is Trev, if you don't know me, and uh, I am the pastor here right now, and the only full-time pastor here at Urban Grace, but also I am a fellow recipient of Grace, um, and I want you to know that, uh, that as we, even though I, I'm the one that's called to bring the word to our church, that I am also one who has to sit under the authority of this word and obey it just like you do. And so we're in uh, a series called Covenant, and it's a brand new series starting today. Um, it's a it's a great series from a great book in the Old Testament that some of or some of you may or may not be all that familiar with, um, and it's, it's the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua is the fifth book of the Bible, and so if you want to turn there, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible, just put up your hand, and someone will give you a Bible. Uh, if that's your first Bible, or if that's the Bible that you'd like to have, then you keep it, um, and we'll begin reading in the book of Joshua starting in chapter 1. And so feel free to follow along with me or look in your app if you want as well. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read the whole thing. This is what it says, the Word of God. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, that's a river, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that, is the, that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. 
And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they, the people, answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And whenever, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is God's word. Well, as we begin, I want to ask you uh, a question about promises. And the reason why I say promises is because this idea of covenant really comes from the idea of, of promises. Have you ever, first of all, have you ever had a promise broken on you? Has someone ever promised you something? Whether that is, I promise I'll call you back, and they never have. I promise I will return this email. I promise I'll get this done. I promise I will call you back for a second date. And then that promise has gone broken. That's a small promise. Perhaps you've had bigger promises broken. And some of those bigger promises are, you've entered into a dating relationship. I promise I'll be with you forever. And then that's broken. I promise I will be friends with you forever. And then that's broken. I promise I will play on this team for the rest of my career. And then it's broken. It hurts when promises are broken to us but then we think about this. Have you ever broken a promise that you've made to someone? I'll call you back. I'll return that email. I'll get that done. I'll work out till the end of the year, whatever it may be. The reason why I bring up promise and ask that question about promise is that covenant is really a big part of this. Uh, covenant is, is a promise, but really covenant is a formalized promise. But a, pro a covenant is, is unlike what we would say, uh, it's very different than some of the promises that we might think of. So when we think of covenant, sometimes we think of things like contracts. And I want to differentiate between a covenant and a contract. A contract is a promise that you make that if you do these things, then I will do these things. Right? That's what a contract is. And we, we find this. And it's, it's amazing when you look at contracts, you talk to people who, who draw up contracts, and it's amazing how often these things are actually broken. Right? As, as, as long as I do this, then you will do this. But if I don't do this, then you won't do this. And the reason why I want to contrast a contract from a covenant is a covenant is a promise that says, I will do this regardless of what you do. I will fulfill my end of the bargain regardless of whether you will fulfill your end of the bargain. We're calling our series Covenant because actually uh, it's really the story of the fulfillment of a promise, a formalized covenant that God made with a man named Abraham very early in the biblical story. And it's really the, the part of the promise that is, is really kind of the fun and exciting part. 
Uh, for them anyways, maybe for us it's a little awkward of a text, but for them it was exciting because this is the promise that was made to the people of God from the very beginning. You see, very early in the scriptures, God gave a man named Abraham a promise. In fact, he made a covenant with him. He said to him, Abraham, I will make you and your people a blessing and I will give you land in which you can inhabit so you can, you can be a blessing and you can bless others through this. I will make this enormous family. Now what's fascinating about this covenant that God makes with Abraham is at the time, Abraham's really old. Uh, at the time when God says, hey, this is the time when I'm going to start fulfilling this promise, Abraham's actually an old man. He's in his 90s and so is his wife. And his promise is that he's going to have a, a large family. Now, if you're 90... Um, you aren't really thinking about childbirth at this point. You're not really thinking, am I going to get my wife pregnant at this point in time? That's not on your mind. But that's really the, the beginning of the promise. And then miraculously, Abraham does have a son and the promise continues and these people build. And over the, the first five books of the Bible, God is fulfilling his promise to make a blessing through Abraham. He is making a people. He is making a, a, a large family of people that love God, that worship God, uh, that, and that want to reflect God with all that they do. And then when we come to the book of Joshua, we see that we're going to see the fulfillment of a particular part of the covenant that involves the land and the place. But I want to, even before we get to that, I want to remind you that um, this may seem really distant to you because this is a promise that was made to some ancient Hebrews um, where many of us, most of us, maybe all of us are not ethnically Jewish and so this doesn't seem like a promise that would apply to us. But that's actually why we say that we're all about Jesus and the gospel because the gospel actually says if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you actually become an heir of this promise through the belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we believe that Jesus was God, became man, not was man, became God, but was God, became man, came to this earth to rescue us and put us in right relationship with him through a, a number of ways, but primarily through the, his death and sacrifice on the cross. That's why we have a cross on our stage. This is important to us. The, the cross is the gateway to this promise. Jesus has to die on a cross to pay for sins, to put us in right relationship with him. And then he says, when we believe in that promise, here's what Galatians actually says. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's me and you. That's anyone that's not Jewish, by the way. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so we would say that all of the promises that we receive, all of the things we receive through Jesus, actually are promises that are being fulfilled in a covenant that started a long, long time ago, but ultimately are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. And that's why we talk a lot about Jesus, because we believe that you can't really get in on any of those blessings unless you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You can't receive the blessings of Jesus just any other way. The Bible clearly says it's through Jesus that we receive these blessings. 
And so I wanted to tie that into our, our, our story this morning because there's a lot going on. And really, honestly, uh, after tackling it once already today, I realized how large this story is and how much background information, how much time we could spend giving you all kinds of background information, especially if you're not all that familiar with this particular part of Scripture. And so let, let's, uh, let, let's just consider why we would, we would even tackle this idea of, of covenant and tackle this idea of Joshua. And, and, and covenant, by the way, is a, is, it's a word that actually you could use to describe the entire Old Testament. Actually, that's what the word Old Testament means. If you go in your, in your Bible and you look in the cover, it says Old Testament, also Old Covenant. That's really where this idea of Old Testament, so every book, could, you, you could name it covenant. But I think it's helpful for us because covenant is the kind of relationship that Jesus wants with you. Because Jesus doesn't want a contract relationship with you where if you do these things, then he will do these things, or he will do these things as long as you do these things. Jesus wants to enter into a covenant relationship with you that says no matter how many times you've broken his covenant, if you believe in Jesus Christ, he'll fulfill his part of the covenant. Jesus is always faithful, even when we're not faithful. Jesus is always loving, even when we're not loving. Jesus is always kind and generous and truthful even when we aren't truthful. And we've all made some sort of covenant with God, some sort of promise God. I find that these promises to God often happen when our vehicles um, conk out. So my vehicle conked out this past week and I was wondering right away, Jesus, what can I do to please you to make sure that you answer my prayer so that I can get this car started and turned around and parked on the right part of the street. Jesus wants, wants us to take a look at, at Joshua because I think there's a lot of great challenges in this book. We're, we're drawn to some of these stories just because they're, they're, there's such a miraculous uh, feel to many of the things that go on. But in the same way, even though they're miraculous, they also feel very far removed. And so they'll take some time to wade through and, and, and I hope you come back week after week and obviously bring people for the evening service. But this is a bridge book. This is a book that moves from um, these first five books, the story of Moses, into kind of the next generation of what God is going to do. And so let's look together at the first part, which is verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5. In, this, in, the, in these first five verses, what we find is that Moses is delivering the leadership to a man named Joshua. Now, right there, we've got to p- kind of pause and back up and give you some background information and describe m- more or less what has been happening. So, We have talked about the promise that was given to Abraham, but then that promise was passed on. Abraham didn't see the full fulfillment of that covenant promise, and so that covenant promise was passed on to a man named Moses. And Moses is kind of, uh, he's kind of a stud in, in biblical stories. Four of the first five books are about Moses. Uh, They attribute all of the first five books to Moses' writing. Uh, Many would say he didn't actually write them, but really was part of kind of editing the story because he had an inside track. Some of the stuff that we find in those first five books, only a guy like Moses could possibly know. Um, I, think, I don't think he wrote the part which said Moses was the most humble man in the world. 
personally. Um, that's just, that's my scholarship hard at work. Um, but I, essentially, I, I think that, that these first five books depict this great leader, Moses. Everyone loves Moses. And in those, in those first five books, we see this story of Moses kind of growing old. He's not going to fulfill the covenant. We, we find out that it's because he was a disobedient at a certain point, and God really wanted him to impress upon him that disobedience is a real issue, and uh, he wanted to make sure that Moses understood that, and so he told Moses, you're not going to see the fulfillment of this covenant. In fact, your, your assistant, Joshua, is. Now, for some of us, like if we're a boss or we are not a boss, we would say that would be a tough deal if you're the leader and you know that your assistant is going to get to basically take the next level of the company and this is essentially what happens with Joshua but the reason why Joshua is is chosen is really because we find that Joshua is is he's quite a courageous man but we find out that he's courageous because he believes in God's promises he believes in taking God at his word we're not told all the details of how God spoke to people there's various ways in which we understand God speaking to people, but we do know that God spoke to Moses. We do know that God delivered to Moses the law. That's where we get the Ten Commandments from. They're actually called the Ten Words. We know that these words were serious to the people. And, and as these words are given to Moses, and Moses is given instruction, and God is speaking to Moses, Moses is instructed to go basically to the, um, to the, to the edge of the Jordan River, and I'll, we'll get to where that is in, in a little bit, but I wanted to kind of give you this picture of, of how courageous Joshua was because as they stand on the banks of this river and they're ready to take the land that God has promised to give them where, where they basically get to multiply and enjoy great produce and livestock and farming and agriculture and basically everything Sunnyside. That's where I live, so this sounds awesome to those people who live in Sunnyside. And as they look at this land, Moses said, I, I want you guys to go scout out what the land looks like. And so he takes a representative from each member of then the tribes. That's how they kind of divvied themselves up into 12 tribes. And so they took a representative from each one of these tribes and, and they sent them in. So 12 spies go in and they come back and Moses says, okay, like what's, what's the deal? What did you guys see? Well, 10 of those spies basically tell Moses, hey, it looks awesome. The land is full of milk and honey. I remember a weird joke from when I was a kid about the milk and honey. What does the land of milk and honey look like? And some kid said, really sticky, but that one's for free. But it's produce and livestock is what it looks like. I mean, to someone who's just been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, which is what Israel was, that looks pretty good, don't you think? Looks like great land. But here was the deal. They said the cities are too fortified. The walls are too high. They said uh, their people are really tall. In fact, there's a, a weird kind of reference to some people that show up in Genesis chapter 6. They're basically are giants or nine-foot-tall people basketball players right the usa basketball team is is it's it's just too tall these people are too terrifying and, and so even though the land looks great my recommendation moses is that we don't do it but two of those guys joshua and caleb 
say exactly the same thing, except they say, these people are really tall, the city is really great, there's lots of milk, lots of honey, lots of produce, lots of livestock. But we can take this because God is with us. God will go forward with us. He will fight our battles. He is the one who promised this. He is the one who will fulfill this. We've seen God work here. He will work here. And right there, Moses is told by the Lord, this is your guy. That's exactly what he says in, in Numbers 14, 6-9. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. I mean, that's a strong statement for someone who has not yet entered into battle. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. How'd you like that? The leader is leading them, hey, we can do this. And the people are like, no, we can't. And hopefully there's a gravel pit nearby where we can kill you by. He's a courageous man. And I believe he's a, a great leader. Let me give you a little bit of background as to where we actually are in this particular area of the world. Uh, right now, these people are right around in this particular area. It's, they've had to actually had some miniature battles as they've gone along here. Um, that's actually in the book of Deuteronomy. And so if you're interested in that, you can read the book of Deuteronomy. and will tell you a little bit about some of those battles as they come down here. They're somewhere in here. Okay, right there is the Jordan River. I'm following that as closely as I can. Right there. It goes between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee there. A Jordan River is not really a big river, but it has big significance. Um, my friend Tim showed me pictures. He's been in the Jordan River, actually. He said it's freezing cold. So it's interesting. I had this impression that it was really warm, kind of tropical river. It's not. It's freezing cold, right, Tim? Very, very cold. Um, it's not actually a really big river in areas. In some places, it's just kind of almost like a creek. But it's huge significance because of where it is geographically. See, geographically, what it means is that this part is the area that's not been settled over here, and this part is enemy territory over here. Um, who's ever played the game Capture the Flag? Anyone play Capture the Flag? I love that game. For those of you who aren't, haven't played it, you're missing out. But in Capture the Flag, you make these, these boundaries. Sometimes you make them in between two trees. Sometimes you make them on the ground. Sometimes you make them with little, like, remember that fluorescent ticker tape stuff? Uh, sometimes you do that. But those boundaries don't mean a whole lot until um, they become enemy territory, and then, mean, then they mean a whole lot. And essentially, what th the reason why we the Jordan River is such significance is not again because of its size or that Israel can't cross over it. But, but literally, when they cross over, like if this was the Jordan River right here and this is the bank on the other side, if you cross over the Jordan River, you are declaring yourself w at war with the owners of that land. That's essentially what you're doing. And so Israel is sitting on this side of the Jordan River. They hear a bunch of sermons. They hear about 33 sermons in Deuteronomy from Moses about what it's going to be like as they cross over the river into the Jordan. And this text here 
is essentially Moses and, and the, the succession, the leader's succession from Moses being passed into the Jordan and, and essentially Moses say, you go, you take them. Now, what I found quite interesting as I studied this is of the five commentaries that I looked at to get some help on this, not one single commentary was willing to touch this idea of the morality of warfare. I found that quite interesting. I know that that, I just want to mention this because I believe it's somewhat of an elephant in the room of God asking people to go into a land that's presently occupied, win battles, use swords. Um, there, there is killing, there is death involved, there is destruction. Um, I will say this, uh, we, we don't know everything about that. Uh, I think we'll try and tackle that perhaps in another message that actually deals with um, an actual battle I think this is a great place where you need, you know, I just need to write something about this, about what I've discovered. And I know that th it is, it's this huge kind of elephant in the room because right now, as, as we live in Canada and we're facing our involvement with various genocides across the world, there is this question about the morality of this and how this works and how we deal with this. And so I just wanted to kind of mention the elephant in the room and then actually pretend that the elephant isn't there, there anymore so I, I apologize for that but I but I will say very quickly that that Israel was very much a product of their time um, they very much everyone was at war in fact there was actually um, there was actually a, a time of the year when people went to war like oh it's about time that I should go out and try and hurt the enemy that's literally kind of the attitude of most of the people and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to defend Israel here, but I am saying it's amazing that in spite of all the entire world seemingly being at war with one another, that Israel had some fairly strict moral guidelines as to how they could go into battle. And in fact, the, the, the real exciting story, I think, in Joshua is in chapter 6, where um, as a super amazing uh, battle strategy, Israel marches around uh, the city of Jericho while Miles Davis tramples in front of them blowing his trumpet hoping that all of the walls come down sounds like an amazing battle strategy to me right I mean if if, if we said hey I mean it sounds kind of Canadian in some ways doesn't it uh, no offense Canadian military but sounds like they're not even fighting the way everyone else is fighting and so I would say that before we begin to just kind of say that Joshua seems to condone a God that's all about genocide, let's, let's just take a back seat from that and, and, and in, in a sense not throw rocks at them because the reality is we don't live in that time and we don't know what that was like and, and, and we don't live in a country where we're fearing our lives. Like personally, and I, I don't know about you, but perhaps your views of war could, could change if you lived somewhere other than Canada. Is, is that not possible? that your views of the way things are handled could change a bit based upon where you live. And so what I don't want us to do is have this really resistant feeling toward Israel and say, Trev, you're, you're not really dealing with the text. I'd like to, but I, I think it's, it's something that we'll have to deal with at a later time. But what I would like to point out is the fact that, that we are still connected to this promise, even though it seems to be about a place that we actually aren't called to go to. Um, 
we're not really supposed to read the scripture and go, well, I guess we got to look on WestJet's website and see if we can go to uh, the Jordans down on the banks of the river and wait for God to give us the go-ahead to go into what's now Jordan, by the way. Um, no, I don't think that's the application of our text. But it's interesting how this kind of idea of, of, of kind of conquering land, while it's not in the same way, it is applicable to us because we are always called to a place. We are always called to a place. See, the story of the gospel is, first Jesus calls you. First Jesus calls you personally. He calls you. I'm probably pointing at you. Yes, you. He calls you personally. He asks you to be one of his children. He says, repent of your sins. Turn from your ways. Believe I am who I say I am. Follow me. And then he says, I have a mission for you once you believe. And that mission involves being part of a church family. I no longer feel bad at all about saying this. I used to say, well, you know, being a Christian and being part of a church family are two separate things. I now have watched enough people um, who say they believe in Jesus but don't live in community destroy and shipwreck their faith to the point where I just don't think it's really that possible to grow as a Christian anymore without the context of the community. It is kind of a shameless plug for Urban Grace, but I would say... I think it's true for any church. And so as Jesus calls you into his family, then he says, I have a mission for you. And that mission always involves people, but it also always involves place. And the reason why I say that is sometimes we skip over those things when we look in Scripture and we just kind of have this cerebral iCloud vision of Christianity where our spirituality is, is in the cloud somewhere and it's separated from real life. And I would say, we actually planted a church because we believe that Jesus is involved in calling people to places. I mean, I make fun of my own community, Sunnyside, but I live there. I love these people. I love that I'm called to Sunnyside. I want to be in Sunnyside. I, what I do as a pastor, what we do as a church is not different from what I do in Sunnyside. They're both connected deeply. In fact, there's not one Sunday that goes by where I am not made aware just because of the fact that I walk from here to home that we are holding a gospel preaching service in the context of Kensington, actually in Hillhurst, but pretty close to Sunnyside. And I think the application that we need to draw from this is, is simply that, that I am I'm challenging you to reconsider your part in the place that God has for you. I'm challenging you not necessarily to change the place you have and to change the place you live, but to think about the reasons why God has called you to that particular place with those particular people in that particular way right now. I think as Christians, sometimes, again, we, we have this idea that ca God calls us to be together at church, but then my, my family life and my outside of this church life is private. It's not. It's not completely private. No, not everyone should see everything that you do. Of course not. But your life is not simply your own mission anymore when you become a Christian. Your mission belongs to Jesus. 
And Jesus' mission is always finding places where he does not yet rule and reign. And he's calling people to be missionaries, to be proclaimers, to be livers of that gospel wherever they are. Look at what Acts chapter 17 says. Acts chapter 17 says this. This is Paul talking to a bunch of people who don't yet know Jesus about their faith. And he says, and he made from one man, that is Adam, the first man created, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, does that sound like a person who's just saying, well, it doesn't really matter? No, he's saying it matters who you live next to. We need to think about the people that we live next to. Some of us are like, oh, my my neighbors are driving me crazy. They get in the way of me going to church. Did you hear what I said? They may be the reason why you're going to church. They may be the reason why you're here, that God has called you here to learn about the mission of God so that those neighbors can now join in and be part of that great promise, that great covenant that God promised so long ago. So you see, we're not totally removed and isolated from the situation. Israel was, yes, they were called to Canaan. And they were called to go into battle. We're not called to go into battle. We're not called to go into Canaan like, quite like that. At least I hope not. But we are called to a place. We are called to an area. The second thing I would say that we can learn is we are, we are called to a battle. I mean, in some ways, it's just really ignorant of reality to not say there aren't parallels between the way we live as Christians and and like a war. And although uh, war does not happen the same way that it happened in in these scriptures, like it's it's not the same thing. And even I'll give you an example is one of Jesus's followers, Peter, when Jesus was being um, when he was being taken away to be executed innocently he never did anything but he was executed um, and we find out later for our sins on our behalf peter responded violently like they had responded in canaan or to canaan he had picked up a sword and he had cut off the soldier's ear and jesus literally tells peter we don't do it that way anymore he picks up the ear off the ground puts it on the guy's face and the guy's only deaf for what four to six seconds So we don't battle quite the way that Israel would have battled Canaan. We can't see it that way. But it would be a mistake not to see this huge, enormous metaphor of a a battle that happens personally and I think happens even corporately. Because the the, the real part of real life is you're in a battle in your soul. There's a battle for your soul. Some of you, you're battling right now just to stay awake. I get it. It's a battle in your soul. Someone just woke up, I heard. But if you've ever felt this tension, if you've ever felt this tension between something I should do and something um, I, I don't want to do and, 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 and you end up doing the thing that you don't want to do instead of doing the thing that you should do and you know to do and you know is right and you even kind of want to do but you just can't seem to help it. If you've ever 
Have you ever experienced a battle like that going on in your heart? Then you know as well as I do that there is this deep tension in our souls. And the Bible is not afraid at all at talking about this as a real battle, as real warfare. The Bible does say we don't battle against people. Your fight isn't against the people in your church. The fight is against the the princes and principalities of the world. What he's talking about, the, the writer of that scripture, the Apostle Paul, who was someone who experienced Jesus, what he was talking about there is he was saying the, the, the real battle's here. The real battle's for lives, the real battle's for souls, and your soul. And you have a very real enemy, and I know this is going to offend some of you, but Satan is real and he's out to kill you. You say, well, I'm, I'm not dead yet. No, not yet, but you will die at some point. And he's out to draw you as far away from God as he can before you die. Some of you feel this on a daily basis. You feel this tension. You feel this battle. I felt like we kind of battle this even to get our second service off the ground. And it's just like, why do we keep hitting every speed bump at 60 miles an hour? Because I believe we're in a battle. There are people that don't like it, that we're trying to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And even as they say that, I am fully aware that people within earshot of this building would struggle so greatly with that that they would want nothing to do with it. I understand that. But I think what we got to see is when, when we hear how Joshua battles, we can pick up some things from that. And so as we continue to move in the text, and really, like, I can't really, uh, I, I've got to jump all over, but what I want you to hear about is, is the promise. I want you to hear about the promise. And here's what happens is as, as the text continues to move on, we find that Joshua is, is, has this phrase repeated and he repeats this phrase, and that is be strong and courageous, right? If you heard that, if you were listening when we read that out loud, you would hear that over and over again. It's said four times in case we missed it once. Be strong and very courageous. But what's fascinating for me is that this isn't a text really just about pure, raw courage. Sometimes we think of courage, we think of, you know, oh, this, this, this point in our life where we just got to, you know, grit our teeth, bolster our, our will, and, 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 and become courageous. And Joshua's courage isn't based upon his, his will. It's not based upon his past. And believe it or not, Joshua is actually one of these guys that's kept his nose pretty clean as far as Bible stories go. If you've ever read the Bible from cover to cover, which is like one of you, if you've ever read the Bible from cover to cover, you would see that there's a lot of people with not good records. Joshua is one of the few people in the Bible that you could actually learn some decent moral lessons from. But that's not even the point of, of looking at Joshua's clean track record because what we don't find is Joshua is courageous so model your life after Joshua which is actually how some churches I'm sure would would spin this and that's just not the point of the text because Joshua actually says be strong and courageous God was with us and he will be with us in the future 
God promised us something through Abraham. We saw it with our own eyes. And this will come to pass because God never changes. He never gives up. He made a covenant with us. God never breaks His covenant. So we can trust Him. So be strong and very courageous as you step into enemy territory because God said He would do it and He's going to do it. Too many times we think of this idea of courage and we think that we just have to bolster our own courage and figure out a place. Maybe look at some heroes. Maybe get some sweet coffee mugs with some sweet phrases on them that, that help strengthen our courage. And here's what Joshua is told. Get in the Word. Now, I, I love this about Joshua. There it is right there. Be strong and courageous being very careful to do all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now remember that we're in a culture that doesn't really hold written documents in, in high esteem. This is a culture that really feels like the oral way of telling story is much more definitive because when you tell a story in person, you can refute anything. When you write something down in that culture, they understood you can't refute contrary evidence. That's why they discussed things. That's why the Greek philosophers were in person, right? Not just writing things down, they talked. Because you can refute stuff when you talk. And yet we find... Not even is the ink dry on these words, not even as Moses just barely died, but Joshua has said, find your courage in the book of the law. Consider every word. Meditate. Does anyone know what the word meditate means? No, if you were here this morning, you can't answer. What? Different answer. It's actually not bad. I would, I would add to that, you can't tell that time has passed because you've been staring and thinking about something for so long. That's actually what the word meditate means, is to stare. That's where they got the word meditate from. Like stare. As kids, we're told not to stare. Don't stare, quit staring. Right? Essentially, quit meditating on that guy. <laughs> which is what we do if we go people watching, right? We meditate on other people, right? Joshua is told, stare at this book. Yeah, I kind of like that. <laughs> stare at it till the point comes where you don't really understand how much time has passed from when you started to look at it. And, and I love this, and I think here's where we can really learn as we head into battle, that I don't think we can head into battle until we begin to stare at the Word because the Word actually is, is... It's interesting how the Word has been described over the ages. Sometimes we, we look at it as purely uh, a book. Sometimes we look at it as purely words. But it's interesting that the, the, the brother of Jesus, John, said that Jesus was the Word become flesh. He was the book become person. 
And this book isn't just a book of information about God. It's a book about Jesus and how to have a relationship with God who is Jesus. And Jesus actually, in his post-resurrection, after he had risen from the dead, that's a whole other sermon series, by the way, but we believe that too. After he had risen from the dead, Jesus began to talk to people and unpack what the Bible was about. And he kind of lowered this boom and he said, you know what the Bible's about? Me. The Bible's about me. This is about the story of me. And so I think what we can, we, we can learn from this particular book of Joshua is that if we, if we want to really have courage as we take hold of the land that Jesus has given us, that we're going to need to know who Jesus is. We're going to need to know about Jesus. We're going to need to know about ourselves, which the Bible says. We're going to need to know about the mission that Jesus has for us, which is what the Bible's also about. Because Jesus not just saves us, right, but he instructs us that we're on his mission. And so the Bible lays out what that mission looks like. And there are things and ways that we act and reflect the God that we say that we love. And so a lot of scripture is about how we act, not just purely in a moral sense, but because it reflects Jesus in scripture. And so I think we're going to need courage, but I think it's going to be courage in what we know courage in what we know and if we don't know jesus and we don't really know about jesus i would say the first thing that we can learn is simply to to get more information about jesus by getting the word of god in our hearts and our souls i I love that 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 in this particular book it says like kind of eat it Like, like get it inside of you somehow get it so deep in you that it becomes part of you Um, new studies have come out that link knowing God's word to reading it two people got that awesome it's going to be impossible to know what God's word says if you don't simply open the Bible and read what it says and I know some of you right away are like, I tried that and the Bible's really boring and I don't totally understand that. And, and I get that and understand that because there are parts that take some time to figure out. And so here, let me just talk about some of the experiences of myself because I am one of you. I experience the same boredom that you sometimes experience. I experience the same difficulty, but I have maybe perhaps a longer history of, of, of reading this. And so let me just talk about different ways that I try to get the Word of God into my soul. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have ADD. Squirrel. So it's difficult for me to read anything unless you put it in front of me and make me read it and put a timer on and get headphones and make sure there's nothing around. And even then, there's a weird scratch in the desk that I could probably fix. So I'm not talking about this like I've got this all put together and I know how to do this. I'm saying I struggle with this probably more than you do. Like most of you have real jobs and and if you got distracted, you'd get fired. But for me, if I get distracted, sometimes no one's around. But don't fire me for that. So there's different ways that I do this. Sometimes I read it online and I listen to it online at the same time as I'm reading it. So I understand it. 
I found my practice, something changed for me about perhaps 10 years ago. I was trying to go through a Bible reading program. That was, I was struggling with that because I was in four different places of the Bible. Now, for someone who has ADD or like undiagnosed ADD, telling me to read in four different places is like making four different meals at once. Literally, that's what goes on in my head. So that doesn't quite work for me the way it might work for you. So I literally, I, I cut and paste. This is the time when you had to cut and paste. I cut and paste uh, the entire book of Exodus and put it in a binder. And then I just, I started to read it bit by bit. And I started to underline things and ask questions about Exodus. And my Bible reading kind of blew up. Like it started to make sense. And I started to see things that I just did not see before. I began to find words that were similar and connect them. And I began to start seeing the whole story go together. I goes, oh, the book of Exodus is supposed to be read as a book, not just a couple of chapters at a time like I'm kind of taught to. And I started reading some background information. And now, honestly, I, I generally carry a, a study Bible with me when I read for my devotion time or my, uh, that's, that's a Christian word, sorry, my time that I read the Bible then. Because I, I go, if, if I don't understand it, I can't remember it, I can't journal my way through it, that's another thing I do. I journal what I feel and hear God teaching me. I write it down. I think it's over there. I accidentally left it on the stage. I was like, I hope no one reads that journal. But that's where I keep the record of things that I am learning. Right now, I'm in Second Samuel. And I'm just, I'm slowly going through this. And I'm, I'm a slow reader that way. It takes me forever to get through stuff. Some of you, I, I'm just giving you suggestions, but, but really when it says, there, like, how do I read my Bible? Just think of it like when you're told to uh, get more water in your system or drink more water in, in your life, um, very few people tell you how to do that, right? So drink more water. What does that mean? Well, that means you drink more water, really. Like it, there's not a ton that people need to be specific because some people need to drink water first thing in the morning. Some people need to drink eight liters of water per day. Some people need to carry a nice little water bottle with them. Some people don't mind drinking tap water. Some people need filtered waters. Some people need this kind of water. For me to say, this is the way you should all drink water and this is the way it should go is silly. But in the same way, if I told you this is the way you should be reading your Bible, I would say that's silly. The end goal is really to get the word in your heart and soul, to meditate on it, to find a way, whatever way is best for you, figure out that way and get that word in you because in that word you will find Jesus. And here's, I, I think, four ways that I think you should look for. And, and maybe one day when we get a blog or when we do this sermon notes or something online, I'll, I'll add these. What you should be looking for as you read anywhere is, number one, is it showing a foreshadow of Jesus? That means is this, is this giving a picture of what Jesus will one day do? So in, in, in the promise of, of Abraham that we see in Genesis, if you read that, it says, I will make all people a blessing through you. You should be saying, well, is this a picture of what Jesus will one day do? That's the first question I usually ask. Second question, is it showing a pattern of how Jesus works? So is there this pattern that we could follow that, that this is how Jesus typically works? 
Like he, he gives grace to the humble and he opposes those who are proud. That's a pattern of how Jesus works. That Jesus gives grace to those who want grace and to those who don't want grace, he says, why, why would I give you something that you don't want? Thirdly, I, I, I see it's showing us how to respond, good or bad, to Jesus. And even in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, you can, you can still find applications for this. Fourthly, it shows our great need for someone like Jesus. And I think this is the big one for me. Is when I read through Scripture and I see that question, oh, this shows me the great need for a Savior like Jesus. You know, if, if, if God's commands are all this high and His level of, of perfection is this high, isn't it great to know that He fulfilled that and He gives that to me simply through belief in Him? Oh, it shows me my great need for Jesus. So now when I read the Ten Commandments, I'm reminded not of all the things I should be doing. Even though I start out that way, I, I really end going, oh Jesus, I am so thankful that you fulfilled the entire law. And that even though you still call me to model and imitate my life and reflect my life through these things, when I break these commandments, I need you. I remember asking one guy, we, we, we preached in a church of, that I used to, excuse me, used to pastor, and I asked him what he was getting out of the Ten Commandments series, and he says, I realized through this series that if we don't have Jesus, we are in deep trouble. I was like, right answer. Sometimes that's why you just need to read Scripture. You just need to know how much you really need Jesus. And for those of you who actually don't read Scripture, you, you probably struggle with this idea of not really needing Jesus that much. That's how it works in my life. If you... I think we've also gotten this idea, like I use that Christian word in my devotion, that, that was really is this Christian catch-all word that has been used for a long time for the time that I am away from everyone else to learn how to love everyone else. And I would say, I, I think we've got to change our perception of Bible reading. So if Bible reading is tough for you as an individual, find someone to read the Bible with. It's like if you want to get in shape, is your best strategy to do it by yourself away from everyone else? Or is your best strategy to find someone else who also wants to get in shape, who also get up at 3.45 a.m. and go running with you? Which is easier? And so I would say, yes, there, there, you can't simply depend on that, but I think this helps. Couples, friends. Roommates. I know some roommates in our church that they're just deciding, you know what, it's a struggle for me to get into the Word. So I'm just going to join with my roommates over breakfast and read the Scripture and then just talk about what that means and how that works and where's the need for Jesus. I think it's brilliant. But not all of you have roommates, so I can't just blanket this. What I'm saying is, at the end of the day, is I think our application is find a way to get it in you. Find a way to get God's word in your life. Some of you don't have a problem with that. Some of you are very good at that. You're individuals, you're disciplined, you got your Bible reading program, um, you check it off. Some of you are told, I can do it. But you're actually kind of struggling with believing some of these promises. You don't disbelieve that they're true or there is some truth there, but you're just struggling to believe certain things. And so I would say, I think Joshua really 
reminds us that getting in the Word reminds us of how God has been faithful in the past. And if you want a little shameless plug for reading the Old Testament, for reading the Old Covenant, I would say throughout the Old Covenant, it's a long story of how God is constantly faithful to His people in spite of their unfaithfulness to Him. And some of the most encouraging places in Scripture are places in the Old Testament where I see, wow, God has been at this a long time. God has been really faithful for a long, long time. And so some of you simply need to be challenged and to say, you need the courage to believe in the God who is always faithful. And you are finding ways around certain passages of Scripture. You're, you're considering yourself perhaps one of those exceptions that doesn't exist in Scripture. I've had numerous conversations with people who are, who are so on board with this idea of God's Word being truth, and then it's something in their life that comes up, and they're like, well, well not for me. It's not true for me. It's just true. And so you need to be challenged to look at God and prove Him wrong. He's always faithful. Always faithful. If He says He will do something, He will do something. That's what Joshua says as they go into the land. He said He would do something. I've watched Him do something. Now, this, this, this is not to you know, gloss over waiting periods for God to do something. Did you know that in spite of the fact that Joshua said that, he was one of these people who waited for 40 years while the rest of the people were under the disciplinary action of God waiting for these promises to be fulfilled? Joshua was fairly old by the time he enters into battle because he had to wait for all the people who would not believe in the promises of God. And so you, we need to be challenged to believe what we read. And I think these are kind of together. But the courage to take Jesus at his word. And I think, again, some of us are, are fine with, with the promises of God that seem to, they seem to be easy to follow. Like God loves me so much that he sent his only son to die for me, to save me. I believe that. But you run into a little bit of a roadblock when God says, when Jesus says, I discipline those I love. Some of you are like, no, no, I don't, I don't like that part of the promises of God. I feel under discipline from God. He must, he must hate me. I, I struggle to believe that. And, and I would say, some of you need to pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to give you courage to believe that God both loves you enough that he would send his only son in this world to die for your sins in your place and to give you full right relationship with God, full hope, a brand new mission, purpose in life, purpose after your life. That those promises are also means times of severe testing, times of frustrating waiting for God to act upon His promises that sometimes God calls his people to wait because he wants to test what's really in their hearts, not for his sake, but for our sake, so that we know what's in our, really in our hearts. 
How many of us are really courageous until it gets difficult? Right? One of the writers, C.S. Lewis, said that Pilate, who is the, essentially the, the Roman centurion who, who condemned uh, Jesus to death, said he was really merciful until it got risky. And as soon as the, the risk of, of what Pilate may or may not do could challenge his life or his authority, he, he backed out. Well, that's not courage. Courage is saying, no, no, no. Regardless of how God may answer, I believe he will. Regardless of how God may come true on his promises, I know he will. But I know this is difficult. And I'll give you an example to close. Is that one of the promises of God is that the gospel, the truth about Jesus, the Bible says is the power of God for salvation. That means literally that without the gospel, there is no chance of salvation outside of that. Now that seems really narrow-minded if you don't understand the whole context of the Bible. But I believe that. I believe that to be true. I'm willing to stake my life on it. But I tell you how easy this is. Just yesterday, I'm talking with someone who does not yet believe in Jesus. And I have this question mark in my mind that asks, is it really the power of God for salvation or is there something else included on top of that? And I'm tempted to just take the sharp corners off that truth and and try and find a way around it. And so uh, this isn't something that I say to you that you need to get more into the Word of God. I say we need to find our courage in the Word of God because in the Word of God is the Word become flesh, Jesus Christ. And so as we close, band, come on up. We celebrate something and, and literally this table here was instituted at, at the Last Supper. That's why we call it the Last Supper. We call it um, um, the Lord's Table. And at the Lord's Table, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, I'm instituting a new covenant. That's what he did. He unveiled what was going on. He said, see that, that covenant that began? I'm unveiling a new covenant. It's completely fulfilled completely fulfilled in me, in my blood, in my sacrifice. You see, Jesus became flesh. That's what's represented here by the bread, flesh. That's his, his covenant was not made simply through some sort of written contract. He came in person and said, that's my covenant with you. I came to you. I died for you. And in doing that, he shed his blood, which is why we also have the cup. And so this, this evening, if you're, if you're not a Christian, this really isn't a, isn't, isn't a celebration for you because when you partake of it, what you're declaring is, I'm one of the children of the new covenant. And I'm not doing that to try and exclude you or make you feel bad or make you feel embarrassed. I'm trying to do that simply to say, I don't want you to be fooled that by taking this, you somehow have earned a barcode from God that gives you a scot-free life. There, there's nothing magical about taking this, but this is supposed to be a celebration. And so if you do not yet believe that Jesus is the way into the new covenant in a relationship with God, I would say, what would hold you back? 
Bible simply says, confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And that's simply all that it takes to be one of the receivers, the heirs of that new covenant. So let's take together.